Scripture reading this morning is going to be in Acts chapter number 17. <clears throat> going to be looking at verses 16 through verse 34. If we could all please stand for the reading of God's Word. Acts 17, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange thing to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not far, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Our Father and our God, we ask for your blessing now as we approach the word of God this morning. I just pray that you would give each one of us ears to listen, hearts to receive, and help us to obey what it is that the Spirit of God has for each one of us today. I pray that you would open our eyes, uh, help us to understand this text and uh, what Paul was trying to convey that day and the city of Athens. Help each of us to be instructed by this uh, about you. Help us to know you better, to love you more. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are continuing our study of the book of Acts, and we are right in the middle of the second missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy... They were all called by God uh, back in chapter 16 to take the gospel to Macedonia, what is modern-day Greece. 
Uh, so far, Paul had basically, as we've seen in the first missionary journey, traveled to Turkey, uh, which modern-day Turkey. Uh, now he's in Greece, uh, preaching the gospel, establishing churches uh, all throughout this region. Uh, just so you can see this on the map, they went first, as they went to Greece, uh, they went up to the city of Philippi. That was the very beginning of their ministry there in Macedonia. Uh, Paul and Silas, of course, were arrested there and imprisoned for a time. And then leaving Luke in Philippi, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy traveled to Thessalonica and then to Berea. Uh, that's what we saw last week. Uh, in Thessalonica, once again, they met resistance. Uh, the Jewish leadership tried to have them arrested, uh, but they were able to escape and he head over to the next city of Berea. Uh, after spending some time there in Berea, having some success, great numbers of people coming to the Lord, uh, once again, persecution came as a mob from Thessalonica followed them to Berea and uh, got, tried to get them in trouble there as well. And so Paul had to quickly get out of town. Uh, he was separated from Silas and Timothy. And so Silas and Timothy at this point are still here in Berea. Paul has kind of escaped quickly to the city of Athens. And that's where we are at uh, this morning. Uh, Paul is in the city of Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to meet back up with him. He sent word uh, to them to, to come to him. And today we're going to see Paul's ministry to this city, uh, Athens, the capital city of Greece. Here's just a few pictures of the uh, ruins of Athens. Uh, the city of Athens has been called by historians the greatest city of the ancient world. It was the center of art and architecture. It was also the center of philosophy and education. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, they all came from this city. Religiously, Athens was pantheistic. Uh, they worshipped many gods, tens of thousands of gods. It's been said that it was easier to find a god than a man in the city of Athens. And so our text begins by describing Paul's reaction as he's walking about the city, seeing the shrines and the altars, uh, this is what it's, verse 16 begins. It says, Now Paul was waiting for them at Athens. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So Paul is here in Athens looking around the city, uh, meeting the people, walking the streets, and he becomes greatly distressed at what he sees. Idolatry everywhere. Altars and shrines to false gods. Sacrifices being made to gods of stone. Uh, this grieved the Apostle Paul. Paul had a passion for Christ to reign over all the world. Uh, when he came into this place of idolatry, he was jealous for the name of Christ, for God's reputation. I think this is an attitude uh, we, we lack too often. Jesus taught us to pray for God's name to be hallowed. You remember in our study of Luke, uh, when we talked about the model prayer, the very first Part of that, Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed. We are to pray that God's name would be regarded and held with, with honor among the people. That God would get the glory, the respect that is due to his name. Uh, also in that same model prayer that Jesus gave us, he said to pray for the kingdom of Christ to advance. Uh, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray for the nations of the world to be discipled to obey Christ, to acknowledge his lordship. We're to pray for people to come to Christ, not only for the sake of their souls, of course we care about that, but also just for the sake of God, giving the glory that is due to his name. 
We are to work and pray for the glory of God. And so being in this pagan city of Athens, Paul is grieved at the disrespect that is shown to the true God by all of these imposters. And so verse 17 says that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. So Paul's first approach, as always, here in Athens was to preach Jesus to the Jews in the synagogues. Uh, devout persons there most likely refers to the Gentile proselytes to Judaism. So uh, these would be people like you and I who were born not Jews uh, ethnically, but they had converted uh, to Judaism in a sense. They had attached themselves to Judaism. They had uh, I, uh, realized that this was the true God. Yahweh was the true God. And so they had embraced him and uh, were following in uh, Jewish teaching. And so Paul goes to the synagogue. He presents the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection uh, to the Jews and to the proselytes. Uh, no doubt, as we've seen in the past, Paul went through their Old Testament uh, demonstrating how Jesus fulfills uh, the prophecies of the Messiah. We saw that last week that he did that in Thessalonica and Berea, and no doubt he did the, he did the same thing here in Athens. Uh, some others in Athens came across Paul, and they were interested in what he was saying. Uh, these are not Jews, but these are the pagans of Athens, the, the pantheists. Uh, verse 18 says, Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, so you've got there in verse 18, Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Again, Greece and in particular Athens uh, was the center of philosophy. Epicureans were followers of the philosophy of Epicurus, who had founded a school in Athens about 300 years before this. Uh, this group, the Epicureans, saw the aim of life as pleasure and freedom from pain. Uh, they saw organized religion as uh, evil, especially the idea that the gods would punish uh, the wicked in the afterlife. They rejected all of that. To them, the gods were so remote as to not be interested in human affairs. Epicureans did not believe in life after death or any sort of judgment day, and so uh, naturally, as a result of that worldview, they thought that life was all about pleasure here and now. Uh, living it up, enjoying your life, that was the Epicurean way. Stoics were followers of the philosophy of Zeno, who had come to Athens and taught that the virtue was that I'm sorry that virtue was to be the aim of life rather than pleasure and so in a sense the epicureans and the stoics are on opposite ends of the spectrum the stoics emphasized personal responsibility uh, they believed in some sort of divine providence but their view of god was that he was basically one with the universe that god was everywhere and in everything and so humans from the stoic perspective had a duty to contribute to the good of the world. These were the philosophical people that Paul was conversing with. They were hearing Paul preach about Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. And to them, this was a very new concept. They had never heard of Jesus, uh, most likely, and certainly uh, did not know about this resurrection from the dead. This was all new, and so it interested them. Verse 19 says, They took him and brought him to the Areopagus. Uh, the Areopagus is not necessarily a place as much as it is a group. Uh, it is the Supreme Court of Athens. The Supreme Court of Athens, they convened on a place call, called today Mars Hill. 
Uh, here's a picture of it, this little rocky uh, bump right here in, in Athens. That's where the Areopagus would meet. The Areopagus was the advisory council of Athens. They supervised uh, religious and educational matters. These were the leaders of the city, uh, educated men who were, were very interested in philosophy and religion. And so this council says to Paul uh, in verse 19, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke adds this parenthetical statement in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Again, these were philosophically minded people. They loved to spend their time discussing uh, different things, having intellectually stimulating conversations. And so they asked Paul to present his teaching, uh, his new religion that they were very unfamiliar with. They wanted to hear what this was all about. And so Paul has a great opportunity here uh, to present the gospel. Paul's speech here is very different than how he presents Christ throughout the book of Acts. Typically what we've seen as Paul goes from town to town, uh, he goes to the Jews, the religious people who esteemed the Old Testament. And so Paul would walk through the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He would prove how they pointed to Jesus, how Jesus fulfilled those prophecies and then he would call on the Jews there to uh, repent and follow Christ. That is not Paul's approach here. Because these people didn't know about the Old Testament. These were not Jews. These were not religious in the sense of following uh, the Old Testament. These were pagans. They worshipped all sorts of false gods. They had built shrines to idols of stone and gold all over the city. Quoting from the prophet Isaiah would have meant nothing to them. And so Paul adapts how he presents the gospel based upon his audience. Now, that's not to say that Paul changed the message. He still gets to their need to repent, uh, to believe in Christ, uh, to, to submit to the lordship of, of Christ. Uh, Paul did not change the message of the gospel. The gospel always stays the same. Uh, he tells them about the death, the resurrection of Jesus, and their need to repent. But how he gets there is quite different here. Uh, than when he's speaking to a Jewish audience. And so it might strike you as we read through this speech that Paul never quotes from the Bible here, which is true. Uh, he takes a different approach here because of his audience. Verse 22, Paul begins, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, or maybe superstitious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So as we've said, the, the Athenians had uh, all sorts of idols and altars and temples and shrines all throughout the city uh, dedicated to different gods. And apparently they even had one that Paul came across that said, uh, basically, just in case we missed any, uh, let's build an altar to the unknown God. And so Paul uses this as a launch pad to tell them about the one true God. He says to them, in effect, I'm here to introduce you to the unknown God. You worship all of these deities. I'm here to tell you about one that you know nothing about. In fact, he's the only real God. And that's where Paul ends up. He could have just told them about a God who came to die and rise again for their sins, 
And these people probably would have accepted Jesus as another God and added him to their pantheon. Add Jesus to the list. Maybe we'll build a little altar to him. And so throughout Paul's speech here, he's telling them that this God, this unknown God that I'm presenting to you, is the only true God. And you must repent of your idolatry and turn and worship him alone. But to start with, Paul uses this altar to the unknown God as an introduction. And so we could title Paul's sermon here, Getting to Know the Unknown God. In the verses that follow, Paul explains to these Athenians seven things about the God that they do not know. Uh, Maybe if you were thinking, how could I present to someone that is totally unfamiliar with the God of the Bible, uh, how could I present God uh, to them? Here was Paul's approach. Seven things about the God that you do not know. First of all, in verse 24, Paul begins by telling them that this God is the creator and Lord of all things. Verse 24, he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. And so right from the get-go, Paul is telling them, this is the only true God. There isn't one God who made this and another God who made that. There isn't one God who's in control of the weather and another God who's in control of sickness. No, there is one God, and he created the entire world and everything in it. He is the Lord of heaven and of earth. The whole world and everything in it is was created by this God, and he is the Lord of it all. He is sovereign over all that is. Next, Paul tells them that this God cannot be confined to man-made temples. Again, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Uh, Throughout this speech of Paul, we're going to see this as a repeated theme that your view of God is too small. You think of divine beings as being able to fit inside of a temple or a shrine. And then you build altars to them and you give them food, almost as if they're your pets. But Paul says the real God whom I'm telling you about is way bigger than all of that. He can't be confined to a temple because he created everything that exists. Number three, Paul tells them, This God doesn't need you, but you need him. Verse 25, continuing, he says, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Your temples, your shrines, your sacrifices, those mean nothing to God. He gives us life. We don't supply any of his needs. God is way bigger than these Athenians realized. God can't be confined to a room and fed sacrifices. God doesn't need us to supply him with anything. Rather, we are wholly dependent on him for our very existence. Notice the way that Paul phrases that. He gives, God gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything that you and I have, uh, everything that we A need for our existence, our food, our water, everything comes to us from the hand of God. Listen to the words of God in Psalm 50. He says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, 
and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God says here in Psalm 50, I don't need you. I'm not dependent on you for anything. If I was hungry, I would go get myself some food. You don't supply my needs. I'm the Lord of all the universe. You need me. Call upon me and I will deliver you and then glorify me. That's the message that Paul is trying to teach the Athenians. God is the giver and sustainer of life. You are dependent on this God that you do not know for your very existence, whether you realize it or not. Your life is in his hands. John Stott writes about this section of Acts 17, and he contrasts idolatry with the worship of the true God. This is a bit of a longer section, but I think it's very helpfully stated. Listen carefully to these words. He says, All idolatry, whether ancient or modern, primitive or sophisticated, is inexcusable. Whether the images are metal or mental, material objects of worship are unworthy concepts in the mind. So he's saying there that uh, to worship an idol is to totally misunderstand what God is, what kind of being God is. For, he continues, idolatry is the attempt either to localize God, confining him within limits which we impose, whereas he is the creator of the universe. Or idolatry is to domesticate God, making him dependent on us, seeking to tame him, whereas he is the sustainer of human life. Or to alienate God, blaming him for his distance and his silence, whereas he is the ruler of the nations and not far from any of us. Or idolatry dethrones God, demoting him to some image of our own invention, whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. In brief, all idolatry tries to minimize the gulf between the creator and his creatures in order to bring him under our control. More than that, it actually reverses the respective positions of God in us so that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. There is no logic in idolatry. It is perverse. It is a perverse, topsy-turvy expression of our human rebellion against God. And so this is the point that Paul is trying to get across to them, that the one true living God is way beyond our comprehension. He's bigger than us. He is... Uh, The sovereign of the Lord and of heaven and earth, you you cannot uh, benefit God in any way. You can't supply his needs. Your little altars can't, uh, can't supply anything to him. Your shrines can't contain him. God breaks all of your categories. And then comes the next point of Paul's speech, and this is truly astonishing in light of what he's just said. The next point in his speech is that God is knowable. The creator of heaven and earth the sustainer of the universe, can be known by us. He isn't distant or aloof like the Epicureans say. 
He desires that we would come to know who he is. Verse 26, he made from from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Notice at the beginning of verse 27, the word that. So verse 26, God made all of mankind. He he gave us the world to inhabit it. And the whole reason is verse 27, that we should seek God. The reason God made us is so that we would know him, that we would feel our way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not very far from each one of us. This would have been a radical idea to those in Athens, that God would want to have a personal relationship with us as humans, that he would desire us to know him. Paul says to them, I I know you're searching for God. You're seeking to know him. It's obvious by all the altars and religious icons all over this city. This God that I'm telling you about is the one who put that very desire inside of your heart. He made you in order that you would seek after him and find him. Our whole reason for existing is found in knowing and glorifying God. Next, Paul continues to stress that this God is not an idol made by human hands. Again, he breaks all of their categories. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul quotes here from Aratus and Epimenides, two Greek poets that would have been uh, very familiar at this time. In verse 29, he says, in light of that, being then God's offspring, because we are made in God's image, because he created us and gave us the life that we have, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If God created us, why on earth would we think that we could carve God out of stone? I mean, the, the, the idiocy of idolatry is kind of Paul's point here. How can you think that a divine power that is above us, that made us, can somehow be uh, confined to a space and, and be made out of stone or gold? Something that you made, something that a human being carved. That isn't God. God made us. We don't make him. He's bigger than us. He's more powerful than us. He is transcendent. And so it's an insult to God. It's devaluing him to make idols like this. All of what Paul is saying here is trying to get them to completely reform and reshape their view of God. First, by the fact that Paul keeps referring to God, singular, the one who made heaven and earth and everything, the one who gives us our life the one that we are dependent on. There's only one true God. But also Paul is trying to get them to realize that if God made everything and we are dependent on him for our existence, if he is a higher form of life than we are, then he is the creator and we are his creation. God cannot be confined to a temple. He can't be served in physical ways. He doesn't need us. He's created us and we need him. We desperately need to seek after him and know the one true and living God, which leads to the next point. This God is willing to forgive your idolatry and your past sin 
if you will repent and turn to him. Paul has been scathing them throughout this speech for their, their, their idols, their false view of God. The fact that they thought that a stone, a rock, a piece of gold was the divine power. He's trying to break their categories, help them to see that God is way bigger and more powerful than what you've realized. And in effect, you have insulted this God. Your idolatry is an affront to the one and true God. And that would be a terrifying thought, that a powerful God, way bigger than we can imagine, we have been insulting him for all these years as we've worshipped these idols. And so Paul brings this message of hope to them. God stands willing to forgive all of that. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Everything that you've believed about divine beings is wrong. But this God, the one true God who created you and who desires that you would know him, he stands ready to forgive all of your past false worship if you will simply repent. Turn away from the idols, the altars, the temples. Turn away from the gods of stone and turn to the one true God. He is not far from each one of you. He commands everyone from every nation under heaven to repent and trust in him. Next, Paul tells them, that this God will judge those who ignore his command to repent. And so with the offer of forgiveness, salvation, this offer of hope that you can know the one and true God, that you can find your whole reason for existence in knowing and glorifying the Lord, Paul turns right around and also says a bit of warning at the end of this, that this God, the one and true God, will judge those who ignore His call to repent. Verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so at this point, as Paul is getting to Jesus, the fact that Jesus died and rose again, Paul seems to have been interrupted as he's closing this speech Verse 32 says, When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among those also, uh, I'm sorry, among whom also were uh, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So some, some of the people here, these philosophers, mocked Paul for thinking that people could rise from the dead. Others were interested enough to want to hear more, uh, but not right now. We'll come hear you about this again some other time. And then some believed and became disciples of Christ that day. Among those who were saved was Dionysius, the Areopagite, one of the leaders of the city of Athens, one of these uh, court members of the Areopagus. Church history records that Dionysius became uh, the pastor of the church in Athens and actually gave his life in service of Christ. We don't know how long uh, Paul stayed in Athens or what the rest of his ministry there looked like, but it seemed that this was the first city in Macedonia where he was able to preach the gospel uh, without experiencing persecution. He wasn't arrested. He wasn't uh, thrown out of town. The response to his message certainly was split. Some rejected it and laughed at him. Uh, They were too smart, too sophisticated to accept his preaching. Others were saved including an intellectual leader 
like Dionysius. God worked on his heart and drew him to faith in Christ. Such a conversion should remind us that the gospel is the power of God to save, even some who may surprise us. Everyone, no matter how educated, has a God-shaped hole in their heart. And we as Christians have answers to the deepest questions of life, answers that no one else has. Our job is to present the one true God to those who are desperately searching for him. When we're presenting Christ to those people who are unchurched, who maybe have no understanding of God or of his word, the place to start is with the fact that God exists. Start with God as creator. This is what, what one lesson we can learn from Paul here. We can, we can all look around us and recognize that the world has not come into existence apart from a designer. Uh, despite what the secular uh, humanists tried to say, uh, all of us just common sense know that this world is way too intricate and detailed to have come about through random chance. Uh, and so Paul starts by answering these deepest questions of humanity. Where did we come from? What are we doing here? Is there a God? Can I ever know him? Paul answers all of those questions in this speech, introducing them to the one true God who created all things and who desires us to know and worship him. Then Paul tells them that this God has been manifest to us in history through Jesus, who was raised from the dead and appointed as Lord and judge of the world. And Paul gets to the command toward the end of his sermon there to each one of us to repent and turn to this one true God. Those who obey this command will find the Lord. He isn't far from each one of us. He desires that we would find him. Those who reject this command to repent will face God on judgment day. And so while it's true that Paul doesn't quote directly from the Bible, throughout this speech he essentially gives them an overview of the whole Bible. He starts his speech where Genesis begins, with God as creator of all things. And then Paul ends where the Bible ends in Revelation with Jesus as judge of the world and how we will all stand before him. And so it's true, Paul doesn't quote from the Bible, he doesn't approach the gospel in that way to this audience, but he also doesn't water down the message. He presents the truth to these Athenians in a way that they can understand. This speech by Paul perhaps demonstrates more clearly than any other passage of Scripture both the transcendence and imminence of God. That God is the creator of the universe. He is bigger than we can possibly imagine. And yet he longs to know us. He's vast beyond our ability to comprehend. He made everything. He rules over all the universe. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And yet he is not far from each one of us. He desires that we would seek after him and find him. Lastly, I think this account of Paul in Acts 17 teaches us an important motivation that we all ought to have in our evangelism. This is where we'll close. Uh, we all have been given the command of Christ to proclaim him uh, to the lost world around us. Jesus said in Matthew 28 to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. We preach the gospel, number one, because we've been commanded to. Jesus has given us those marching orders uh, to go baptize and instruct uh, people to follow Jesus. We also ought to preach the gospel because of our compassion for the lost. As we look around at people in our life, we ought to recognize that those who are lost, those who do not know God, will face him as judge. 
And so, out of compassion and love for them, we ought to desire that they would come to know the Lord and the forgiveness that he offers. Paul talks about that often in his letters, how his heart broke for people who would die without the Lord. But we also ought to preach the gospel out of a zeal for the glory of God. We should have within each each, each one of us a burning desire to see God glorified in the world. When we walk around our world and see the corruption, the increasing godlessness of our society, that ought to stir something inside of us, a righteous indignation, an anger that God would be so blasphemed and disrespected by human beings made in his image, people who depend on him for our very existence. We should long for the day when every knee bows to Christ and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. That should drive us to spread the knowledge of the one true God to those around us. He invites all men everywhere to seek him and to know him as he is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he has made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead.